All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts 28. January 2nd, 2022 is when we started in Acts chapter 1. I'm tired. I feel like Paul at the end of chapter 28. It's been a long... It's fun. I mean, we love the Bible. We love the book of Acts. But you spend this much time together working through something, it's very satisfying to finish and get on to something else. Next week, we start a new short series, nine-part series called The Fruit of the Spirit. So uh, we'll be going through that together, something more topical and very much aimed at our hearts and how we experience the grace of God and grow to become more like Jesus. Today, we're in Acts chapter... 28, the end. You like a good ending? Nobody likes a bad ending, right? Well, buckle up. It's funny, because like, uh, you ever go to a movie, a movie you're really pumped to see, you're super excited to see the movie, and then the ending is so bad, you're angry about it? Did that ever happen? Remember The Village? Like, some of us went and saw The Village, an M. Night Shyamalan movie, and uh, we all went, like, super excited. It's going to be great. What's the twist going to be? And I heard booing at the end of The Village in the movie theater. That's how angry everybody was. At the time, everybody was angry. Uh, I've, in the, you know, I've come to appreciate it more now, but ugh, people were not happy with that ending. You know, sometimes you have to have an ending explained to you. That's not one of them. But sometimes you have to have an ending explained to you. I mean, I've watched movies before where I don't like like the ending, and then I listen to a smart person, and I go, oh, I do like the ending. It makes sense now. I appreciate that. This is kind of like that. We've been reading the book of Acts, and we've been very closely following Paul's life and these trials most recently, those last couple of years, and you're not going to get the satisfying ending that you might be expecting, okay? So I just want to warn you up front, but we'll get to it. Um, You know, the book of Acts is is helpful in its own way because books like Acts describe what Jesus and the apostles prescribe, right? It does more showing than telling. And uh, in the end, it really does show us what this book is all about and why it actually ends the way that it does. But I'll tell you on the front end the principle that I want you to hold on to because uh, this is... The takeaway, I believe, from the book as well as this final chapter, and it's this. The mission of the church calls us to cooperate. That's a very important word for us here. The mission of the church calls us to cooperate in the preaching of Christ and the making of disciples. That's what we are supposed to be about. The mission calls us. The mission that Jesus gave the church calls us to cooperate and the preaching of Christ and the making of disciples. So if you're new to the story, uh, well, you're here for the end. And so we're just going to say this, all right? The, the book of Acts follows the Acts of the Apostles and focuses very much on Peter in the first half and Paul in the second half. And at the end of the second half, Paul has returned from a, a, a great missionary journey, his third missionary journey. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he is accosted. He is assaulted by Jewish leadership that don't like him. They have a big problem with him. They don't like his teaching. They don't like his doctrine. They don't like the way he looks. They don't like anything about him. And they're trying to shut him down because his influence is growing. So they make false accusations about him. They try to seek to have him killed. Uh, He winds up being arrested by the the Roman government, and they don't find anything wrong with him. Uh, But the the Jewish leadership want him, and so 
to seek to remedy this whole situation, Paul, who is not only a Jew, but a Roman citizen, appeals, I'd like to go to see Caesar. I'd like to go to Rome. And he can judge my case since I'm a Roman citizen and the Jewish leaders are calling for my death. I, I want him to just settle the issue. And so they agree. They're like, all right, we're going to send you to Rome. And so he boards a ship. It is a long, arduous ship. It's Paul and a bunch of other prisoners guarded by soldiers on commercial vessels going from port to port until they run into a terrible storm. And their boat is destroyed. They are shipwrecked, but they survive on an island and they don't know where they're at. That's where we're at. Chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island on which they have been shipwrecked, the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. This is unexpected, right? This is totally unexpected because back then, uh, if you get shipwrecked on an island, uh, you had the, two, the two likely uh, options are you're, uh, now you're a slave, welcome to your new life, or you're dead, they will kill you. That's, that's what you would expect. So they wind up uh, crashing into this island and turns out the locals are super chill. They're very nice, they're kind people. They're not Jewish, they're not Christians, Right? They are pagans. They got their own way of believing and doing, uh, but they are kind people. They are good people, right? In that relative sense of the term. Malta is a prosperous island, right? They got money too. They're comfortable. It's a nice place. If you ever need to shipwreck, that would be the place to go, right? Where the islanders find these people who are very vulnerable, and instead of exploiting them or ignoring them, they tend to them. They're kind. It's beautiful. And as they get to know each other, uh, you know, they understand what's going on here. They, um, they certainly have learned, right? Oh, there are a bunch of prisoners here. Scary. Oh, but it's a bunch of soldiers. Okay. And uh, they're taking care of everybody. So they know that Paul is one of these prisoners, but they, they immediately jump to some wrong conclusions or just draw some wrong conclusions about Paul from one to the next. Look at verses uh, three through six. It says, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They're so dramatic. Uh, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind and said, He's a god. So he went from being a demon to being a god. I mean, that's, 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 they're, obviously they're, you know, they don't, they have a different worldview than we do. Uh, they're trying to make sense of what's going on before them. And they see Paul, and I love, I just said, Paul, Paul just is the most, he's been going through a couple of years of misfortune, right? He, he shipwrecked, uh, okay, another misfortune, but oh, he's rescued. Like they're on the island and the people are cool. They're chill. They're like, oh, okay, great. Let's warm myself by the fire. And he gets bit by a snake on his hand. It is bad news again. And uh, looks like it's a poisonous snake, right? That's what it looks like. That's why everybody's like, oh man, this is judgment coming upon you. And when he doesn't die, they're like, oh my goodness. He's shaking it off and he's not dying. He must be very, very special. They don't know who Paul is. They don't understand him. But their kindness is shown to be something that's really a part of their culture in some way. Like this, the culture of this pagan island 
is marked by a kind of hospitality, and it's exemplified. Right? It's exemplified in, in verse 7. Now, in their neighborhood of that place, there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. <laughs> That's a great name. Who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So get the picture. The, the big man, the, the, the head guy, the, the person that has most of the property, most of the land, most of the money, most of the power, like the most influential big dog on the island doesn't ignore these 200 plus people that have been shipwrecked on the island. He doesn't just ignore them. What does he have to do with them? He's got rich guy stuff to do. He doesn't need to worry about that stuff. He doesn't ignore them and do his own thing. He sees what's going on. He sees the people taking care of him. And now he begins to practice hospitality. It's again, it's, it's an amazing thing that um, he entertained them hospitably for three days. He said, hey, let's, uh, let's get together. Let's have a little party. Let's, 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 let's get to know each other. It's amazing. And I really, really like this because hospitality for over 200 people for a few days uh, is not just kind, it's expensive. It's costly. And you go, yeah, but you know, he's got money, he's rich. Well, that's why he's rich, because he, you know, he knows how to take care of his money and not have a party for three days with a bunch of randos that just shipwrecked onto his island. He does a kind thing. And I, just to take a moment, just, I want us to take a moment to recognize, and we do see this throughout the book of Acts, but especially in chapter 28, that it's important for us to acknowledge that not everyone who is a non-Christian, and not every aspect of culture is evil. Sometimes we, we get in this like, uh, sort of mindset, this fundamentalistic mindset, where we get so overwhelmed with the bad and evil that is in the world that we just think the world is all bad, and, and people are all bad, and, and non-Christians are all bad, and there, there's nothing, and we, we, we recite scripture, right? Like, oh, well, no one does good, not even one, and, and we... we almost prevent ourselves, or sometimes we do prevent ourselves from seeing the relative good that is in people who do not believe like us, who do not live like us. Homeboys practicing hospitality. Is that a good thing? Yeah, it's a good thing. Is he doing it perfectly? No. Is he doing it in faith and submission to God? No. But what he is doing reflects that he is an image bearer. An image bear, he, it's a kindness. It's, God is hospitable. God is generous. God welcomes us back to himself. He makes outsiders become insiders. And so when you're looking at the culture around us, as it particularly gets weirder and darker, um, recognize that there are still decent people in the city in which you live. And that uh, when, when, Give credit when you see it, right? Call it out. Like, there are aspects of our suburban culture here uh, in, in the Fox Valley area that are wrong, like materialism and greed and superficiality. Like, we can go on and on. There's a bunch of things that are really corrupt and evil about the culture here. But there's also things like, oh, well, the, the culture here values education, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Or uh, I just was talking to a guy that's moved into the area, and he was commenting about how friendly uh, and welcoming people are in the city of St. Charles. 
Um, these are good things. So let's recognize it and not turn every interaction into a hostile opportunity for combat. Nevertheless, Paul experiences and these men experience this, this pagan hospitality. And then Paul, right? Paul hears that uh, this fat cat's uh, father is sick and something amazing happens. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him, that was kind, and prayed and put his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and they were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. First of all, can we just appreciate the love fest that's going on between these pagans and these Christians? It's pretty sweet. I dig it. I think it's so great. These are, they are at worlds apart, right? They're not the same. And yet they're being kind to each other. They're, 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 they're showing compassion and, and interest. I think it's pretty special. So, you know, Paul hears about this sickness. He, he, he goes and he visits and then he prays and then this man is healed. We call this an apostolic era gift, right? Now, some of the spiritual gifts that we see in scripture were unique to uh, prophetic or apostolic eras when God was establishing the scripture or establishing the church. And, and these gifts, real, genuine, these miracle working gifts, were active at the time, and they are not active today. Certainly, God does miracles today, does them every day. Some of you have experienced God's miraculous work in your life, and that is amazing. It's awesome. If you've, if you've been converted, you've experienced a miracle because it takes divine power to spiritually change a sinner's heart. But all kinds of miracles, God does them all the time. But the gift of healing, the ability to pray and heal someone holistically who has withered legs and the inability to walk at all and uh, raise them up, uh, rescue them from that kind of a death, that gifting is no longer operative or normal today. But Paul does his thing as an apostle, and there is healing, and other people hear about it, and then they all start coming around. It's, it's, and here's the thing that I want us to keep in mind as we talk about this. When you see Paul healing, uh, sometimes we, when we get into this whole debate about gifts and spiritual gifts and what's operative and everything, one of the things that people in our camp like to say is, well, you know, the, the spiritual gifts, those miracle gifts like that, those sign gifts, those were there to validate the message, the gospel, to prove that what we preach is true. And of course, that's, there's, there's truth to that as well. Um, but there's another reason that we need to highlight, and that is um, because those sign gifts were a supernatural demonstration of compassion. It put a spotlight on the love that God, his son, and his church have for the world. When Jesus healed people, he wasn't just out there to prove, like, let me show you who I am. Boom! <laughs> that was a part of it. But he healed people out of a sense of compassion, out of a sense of love. And when we see Paul doing this, even in context, it reads that way. He's doing it out of compassion and love. So let's hold that in mind as we're seeing the, the, the love fest, the, the support. They're loading them up. They're finally on, a, on another ship. They're going to set sail again. Uh, but... But look at what it says in verses 11 through 14. It says, after three months, we set sail in a ship. This whole thing is taking forever. 
Paul has been going through this legal mess and attack for well over two years. So he's, he's, he got marooned on this island. Now they're, they finally, they're finally, it's been three months on this island. Not a bad place to, I don't know, three months is probably pretty sweet uh, in Malta. I, I, I'd vote for that. But then when he boards the ship, look at what it says in verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Betulia. I've tried to pronounce it for 30 years. It ain't happening. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. So they get setting sail again, and they board. Luke wants to include this detail. Luke says, oh yeah, the ship that they were, that they were boarding, the ship that they're going to take, has the twin gods on it. It's all branded. It's embossed. It's carved. So it's a part of the whole thing. The twin, the twin gods are here. These are the gods Castor and Pollux. And I know what that is because I looked it up. I do not, I'm, not a, I'm not an authority on Greek and Roman gods and goddesses, so I looked it up. And then I realized, like, oh, I do kind of know those twins because that's Gemini in the zodiac sign. And so if you know, you're, any Geminis here? Any Geminis? Anybody say? <laughs> Astrology's bad. Don't, <laughs> can't believe you admitted to that. You should not know what you're into. So that, the thing, the, Luke is included, why is Luke including this? It's a weird thing. Who cares? Like, who's repping the boat? Like, the ship. Who cares? These, 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 these twin gods, um, they were like the patron saints of sailors. It was like, in God's providence, it was like a tip of the cap using pagan culture. Like, this ship is going to be okay. You're going you're gonna to finally get to where you need to go. Again, Christians don't, we don't have to be so afraid of interacting with a pagan culture. Guess where you live? In a pagan culture. You know what kind of world you live in? A pagan world. That doesn't mean we're just okay with everything pagan and, and, and idolatrous, but it means we better get used to it because you're either gonna have to retreat entirely from the world or you're gonna have to get your hands dirty and interact with people who are different from you. Now, we're gonna talk about what our role and what our job is here in just a little bit, but... It's here. Like, don't be surprised that the world functions the way that it does. There's a brother here who says it all the time when we start talking about what's going on in the world, and he just says, the world's going to world. This is what it does. It doesn't mean we're complacent about injustice or anything like that. It just means don't be surprised and don't retreat because the world is corrupt. Well, these Christians, they... Uh, Paul, anyways, get, and, and the prisoners, they get onto this ship and they finally get to Rome. They finally arrive. We see that in verses 15 and 16, right? The brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. So they, they land, uh, they're in the area, and... Um, the Christians find out that Paul's in town and they want to go see him. They want to go talk to him. And they, they come from two towns that they mention. One is like a market. It's this town. It's kind of like a small town. Um, the Forum at Appius, 
But then they mentioned the coolest sounding town to ever be translated into English, the Three Taverns. That is the best sounding town. That sounds like a Chicago or a Wisconsin town, uh, the Three Taverns. It sounds like a town you would find somewhere in the Midwest. Anyway, so um, they, they come, and on seeing them, Paul thanked God, and he took courage. And when they came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So he's finally made it to Rome. He's waiting to talk to Caesar to get this whole thing squashed. Uh, he's under house arrest. He's got Christians that are coming to visit him. He's got a soldier that is watching him. And so Paul takes the opportunity now. He's like, I'm gonna, let me call the Jewish leaders because, you know, in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders wanted me dead. And so I'm here. Let me call the Jewish leaders and see if we can, you know, sort of straighten some of this out. You know, Paul does want to vindicate himself and, you know, his message. And so uh, in verses 17 through 20, he gives context of why he's there to the Jewish leaders. It says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So Paul gives context. He says, this is what happened, right? In case you've heard, I don't know what you've heard. I want to tell you what happened, let you know that I'm innocent. The authorities have all found me innocent, but there is some kangaroo court nonsense going on where they are trying to shut me down. And he teases it. He's like, I'm all about the hope of Israel. And he's really pointing to the Christ and the resurrection here when he, when he says that. And they are interested. They say in verses uh, 21 and 22, they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. So like they haven't heard. It hasn't gotten there like they've been, they certainly maybe have heard about Paul, but they, they don't know about these charges that he's sneaking Gentiles into the temple and creating all kinds of drama, which he didn't do. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are for with regard to this sect, the way, right, the church, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So we know like people hate you. They hate what you're saying, but we want to hear, right? We want to actually hear from you. And so what Paul does is Paul spends the entire day at an appointed time. They pick a day, they come back, and everybody shows up, tons of people packing the place out, and Paul teaches all day long. Look at verses 23 and 24. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded them to them, testifying. Now, what did he talk to them about? The kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So... Paul has the chance, right? He's like, okay, they want, to hear, they want to hear what we're all about. They want to hear the message. Okay, so he talks to them about Jesus and how the whole scripture, right, because he's working with what we, what we call the Old Testament. He, he's working with the law of Moses and the prophets, how the scripture all is pointing to and is fulfilled in Jesus, and he talks about the kingdom of God. Why is he talking about the kingdom of God? Because Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. Because Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than he talked about anything else. Because the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of Jesus Christ. 
that he demonstrates in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, session where he's sitting enthroned in his ultimate return. It is the context in which God welcomes the kingdom, is the context in which God welcomes outsiders in. He welcomes the sinner into communion and fellowship. So, yeah, Paul is preaching the gospel and some believed. Some believed. And I'll be honest, uh, I was, I was thinking about this this week and it actually, I, it actually encouraged me to see that some believed because in my experience, not many believe. Like I've shared the gospel a lot of times. That's not a flex. It's actually my job. I have to do it. It's like, uh, I'm literally paid to tell people about Jesus. So, like I, you know, so I talk to people about Jesus, but uh, I don't see a lot of conversions. I never have. I've seen, I've seen some conversions. I've led some people to Christ, but very few in comparison, especially to how often I have had the opportunity to preach the gospel. And maybe you feel that way too, right? They'll be like, oh, I don't really see a lot of people trusting in Christ. You know, it happens here and there. And I know that there are some people that are used in, lot, in ways much bigger, and, and we, they see lots of people converted. I don't see a lot. I see some. And it can almost make me evangelistically pessimistic, Right? You ever feel that way? Like, ain't nobody going to believe. Because if you start thinking that, ain't nobody going to believe, then you do it anyway. Eventually, you just stop doing it. Well, God's got it. He'll send somebody who's more effective. Why? I don't need to play any role in this because it's not working. Ah, but people do believe. We may not get to see all the ones that do. We'll see some. And so some believed. Most, most didn't. Most, most don't. And so in that moment, as his Jewish brothers are not receiving this message. Some do, but he then explains that this is a fulfillment of prophecy in verses 25 through 28. It says, in disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. He said, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah, he's quoting Isaiah here, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Paul's quoting Isaiah saying, listen, you guys have had, we, and he's a part of the Jewish people, we have had all of the privilege. We've had the law, the prophets, we have the temple, we have all of these things testifying to this message that I've been sharing with you all day. And you don't see it, you're rejecting it. And it's because your hearts are hard and your ears are dull. And while this has special relevance to uh, the, the people that Paul is talking to right now, it's actually true of all people. You want to know why not very many people believe? Because no one can. No one can. If someone believes, it's because God changed their heart, opened their eyes so that they could believe, so that they could see. He has to open their ears for anyone to hear. But Paul says, well, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And so the message that is for the world but begins with Israel is being rejected by such a large number of, of, of Jewish 
brothers and sisters, that it's, it's a pain point, really, that, wow, the, the people that have no background or privilege in understanding these promises or covenants are going to respond to it more quickly than you are. It's a, uh, it's a hard, it's a hard word, right, that, that this would have to happen. And then it says in verses 31, 30, uh, through 31 that Paul is uh, going to spend some time in this situation that uh, is, I don't know, bad news, right? It certainly sounds like bad news. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Two more years. Still waiting to see Caesar. Still waiting to get this thing wrapped up. And now the credits roll. This is a bummer of an ending. I didn't sign up for this kind of an ending. It's not the, I, would not, I would not write this book this way. I would not finish it this way. There would be much more action. It'd be more emotional. There'd be lots of resolution. You'd feel really good about it. Nope. It ends like this. Paul's stuck there for two more years, and he just embraces it. He's like, yeah, I'm here. So I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone who will listen. Why is there no good resolution at the end of this book? It doesn't feel like the end, does it? Like we want to see, the, we want to see it all wrapped up. We want to see Paul vindicated, proved. Ha ha, he didn't, he didn't do these things he's been accused of. The reason this is such a good and appropriate ending to the book of Acts is because the book of Acts is not about Paul. The book of Acts is about the church and the church's mission. The book of Acts is about what the Spirit of God has done and is doing in the people of God in the fulfillment of its mission, and the mission continues. So it ends with Paul doing what he's always doing, just in another context, just in another circumstance. So what I want us to do is I want us to go back to this idea and consider the entire book that we spent just over two years working through, the mission of the church, right? The mission of the church calls us to cooperate in the preaching of Christ and the making of disciples. I just want to make this point again for us as a church as we're enter we've entered into 2024. It's here. Uh, it's February. Um, as we're looking ahead, I so want this to be who we are. I believe it is who we're striving to be. I genuinely believe that. Um, I, I want this to be true, increasingly true of all of us together here at Redeemer. So the mission of the church, right? We've talked a lot about this over the years. The mission of the church is uh, simple, though it, it is not easy. The mission of the church is to make disciples. We like to say it this way. We make disciples as disciples, right? Because it's something that we're all called to participate in. We look to passages like Matthew 28, 18 through 20 as like the foundational text that demonstrates that this is the mission, the primary responsibility of the church to make disciples. Because Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so he says what? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? And he says, lo, I will be with you always, right? So he's like, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to go and make disciples wherever you are. 
That's the mission. And in the aughts, that is the first 10 years of the 21st century, if you were online as a Christian, if you were engaged in social media and theological debate, you were discussing what it meant to be missional. Does anybody remember missional? That was a buzzword, very popular buzzword. We were talking missional, missional. And then that faded, and then it was gospel-centered now. Like, missional's gone. Who cares? Now it's gospel-centered. And they're oftentimes kind of trying to hit at the same thing. But the, the, the conversation about what it means to be a missional church was helpful, right? Because part of what was helpful about it is Christians had a tendency to think of missions as something that happened in another culture far away, and we didn't think about doing a whole lot at home. So the missional conversation helped to clarify for some of us that the mission is the responsibility of all churches and of all Christians in those churches, that we all participate. So to be missional simply means that you are a church that is characterized or marked by an intentional effort to fulfill the mission. That's all that it means. Now, what does that look like? Um, I'm just going to give you four things that I think are helpful for us to keep in mind at Redeemer Fellowship in the 21st century, February, feeling out 2024. A missional church will preach Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners. Now, I know, you know, it's one of those no-duh answers, but why do we have to say it? Because it is very easy to get off message. Listen, we have a lot to say. The Bible has a lot to say. But we have one fundamental, central message that we share. If, we, if you've got five minutes to share one thing, what are we going to share? It had better be Jesus Christ, the only Savior for sinners. That is our fundamental message. Look at the book of Acts. It's what they focused on exclusively in all of their preaching. Listen, they, uh, there, there is an important need for us to go and do all kinds of theological work, talking about the, the hypostatic union, extremely important, critically important, orthodox important, right? Talk about the doctrine of election. All of these things are super important. But if we've got the opportunity to speak as Christians before the face of the world, our message had better be Jesus Christ is the only Savior for sinners. That's, this is why Paul says over and over again, I, I just preach Jesus Christ and I'm crucified. It's, it's the message of the cross. It's the one thing. And I bring it up because, and I think, I think this, this is a church that is hungry for the word, right? And we value the word and we value the gospel. Um, and I think anytime we have anybody that we ha allow to preach up here, they, they, they bring the gospel. But it takes a lot of attention, right? We have to all kind of want that, right, for, for this to, to really work. Because I wonder, I think it's fair to wonder, if we were to look at any churches. 52 weeks of preaching and look at all the subjects that they cover, like look at all the texts, is there a dominant theme that is evident? Is it Jesus? Is it redemption in Christ? Is it salvation? Is it his kingdom or is it politics? Or is it social issues? What is the message? A missional church, one that is marked, characterized by keeping the mission. Uh, this is uh, one that will preach Christ as a savior of sinners. Uh, number two, uh, a missional church cooperates with other churches. You will not be effectively missional, right? You cannot carry out the mission disassociating yourselves from other Christians and other churches. We are designed to work together. And listen, here, here's, here's the danger. You know what? It, like the Christian life is not intended to be lived alone, and churches are not designed to exist in isolation from all other churches. It's not supposed to be. You know what happens when you isolate yourself and you do everything your own way? You think you're the man. You think 
like, yeah, that's, this is how I do it. And listen, I'll tell you right now, the way I do things, I think it's the best way. You know, the, the, the amount of milk I pour on my cereal is the exact way I think everybody should do it. Like I have opinions about a million things. When you isolate yourself and you're judging by yourself, then you become the standard, you become the measure. And when churches isolate themselves, right, it's really easy to like, okay, so we, we are the ones that are now setting the, the parameters, right, for ultimately like even accountability. And listen, we're Baptists. The Baptists do not have each church in Baptist ecclesiology is an individual church or organization, and it does not answer to a higher organization than itself. Yet, even though we, are, we have autonomous congregations in Baptist theology, even recognizing that from the very beginning, Baptists have always said, however, we must cooperate. We have to partner with other churches or we will never get it done. And it's not designed for us to all be separated and, and isolated. So this is why we are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I know, a little embarrassing sometimes. My family's a little embarrassing, okay? Family's embarrassing because it, they're made up of people. And denominations and conventions can be embarrassing because they're made up of people and Christian people that can be extra cringy. So there's, there's good and bad in any of these cooperative efforts, but we have to do it. And so as embarrassing as it can be to be a member of my family or the Southern Baptist Convention, I praise God that we are a part of it because of the good things that, is, that are coming to pass. So number one, as, as Redeemer Fellowship, if we're going to be a missional church, we must preach Christ as the only Savior of sinners. We must cooperate with other churches. We do that through the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as just partnering with other local churches that we have a lot in common with. Number three, uh, healthy missional churches will teach from all of Scripture. We see Paul doing it again here, but he does it throughout the book of Acts. Jesus himself did it right on the road to Emmaus. We preach all of Scripture. And again, you, this is a congregation that loves the Bible. You love the Bible so much that you are, you are easy on preachers. Now, you're not easy in terms of the content, like we have people come in or any of our people preach, you're easy on us in that if we preach a rather flat or boring sermon, you don't shame us or judge us, at least not to our faces. Uh, you're always very kind because what you really want is the word. You just, want, you just want the word. You just want the gospel. And so that makes it easier here for our preachers to preach because we know that you want the right thing. And so it's, maybe it's easier for us in this context, and I, I, I think we work hard at doing this, but we preach all of Scripture. We do have one fundamental central message, right? Uh, but we have a lot to teach on, and so we cover all of Scripture. We're a word-driven congregation. Fourth, finally, um, a missional church will have a confessional identity. Because missional describes character and confessional describes identity. Confessional is what you believe. Missional is what you do. And the reason you have to be, have a confessional identity before you can have a missional character is because what we believe is what gives birth to how we live. If you try to start, and many churches do, and they're actually, they're, they're big on this, they're public about it, they believe that mission is what gives birth to theology. That means you have to predetermine what your mission is before you develop a theology. Theology, what you really believe, not just what you confess, you know, on paper, what you really believe, your confession, is what gives birth to how you live. So we must have a confessional identity. That means a clearly articulated theology. Paul certainly had one. The early church certainly had one. There are, there are 
creeds in the scripture itself that were recited by early Christians. And we will sometimes even write them down on paper, put the sharpest minds together, articulate what we believe is core doctrines that we can all agree on, this is, this is what we're about. We need a confessional identity if we're going to have a missional character. So, if this is at least in part what it means for us to be missional and the mission of the church is what we see throughout the book of Acts, um, my simple encouragement to us is that we should be asking, okay, so now, what about me? We finished the book of Acts, what about me? The book of Acts was not about Paul. So when I'm asking you to ask yourself, what about me? I want you to come to the conclusion that in a sense, it's not about you at all. It's about Jesus. Your story is about God's work in your life, yes, but for greater purposes beyond yourself even. It's about Jesus, about his church, and you are a part of that. You see, this is the thing. God, God is writing your story, right? You do have your own story, and you're living it, and God is writing it. God is writing your story. You are not. God is writing your story, and if you can see that, if you can see how God is writing your story, you will see how your story is a part of God's story. He's brought you into it that we might actually all work together as disciples, loving each other, caring for each other, reaching out to others, welcoming them into the kingdom. Follow, follow your confessional identity, right? Follow your confession of Christ through the highs and lows of your life and experience, just as we see it with Paul. Because yes, Jesus, Jesus saves you, right? Jesus saves you. But he saves you to make you one of his disciples. God saves you to make you one member of his family that we might together work uh, as disciples who make disciples. God's given us a great opportunity. I believe he has done amazing things here at Redeemer uh, for 16 years. I can't wait to see what he does uh, over the next 16. Let's pray that he allows us all to do it together. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would use us well beyond our capacities, um, that you would stretch us and encourage us, and that we would see growth. Lord, we want to see spiritual growth and growth in wisdom and godliness and faith, but we, we do want to see numeric growth, Lord. Not to be a huge megachurch or anything, Lord, but we, want, we just want to see as many people as possible brought into the kingdom. We want to see sinners' lives changed. So use us, Lord. Use us. We, we're asking you to be generous and liberal. We are not deserving of any part of this, but we know that you are a generous God who gives so liberally, so we ask that you would do that here, that you would keep us both united and hardworking for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.